Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I love to get handwritten letters or postcards in the post. Most people do. Here's one that came a little while ago. Um, it's like a classic postcard. So it's got at the top who it's for to the hatches. It's got at the bottom who it's from. Love, Caleb. And then in the middle, it's telling us like what the person wanted to communicate. And the Bible is full of letters. And we're actually going to start reading one together. But the problem is the one that we are going to read is unsigned. All we know is that there are two sort of follow up letters which are both signed by John the Elder. And so because they're also similar, um, people throughout history have grouped these letters together as one, two and three John. But which John? It could be John, who was a disciple of Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John, who becomes known as John the Elder in 2 John and 3 John. Or it could be a second unknown John who's called John the Elder, who was a disciple of Jesus, but he just doesn't get mentioned in the Bible. Personally, I think it was the John who wrote John's Gospel, mainly because the style and terminology are almost identical to the style and terminology of the Gospel of John. It just sounds like him. And remember last week we learned from Ian Galloway the central message of John's gospel was in John 20 verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to believe in Jesus, to be blown away by Jesus as we read. But he also wants us to keep meeting him so that we have life. And then compare it to 1 John 5 verse 13 where the writer gives their reason for writing and they say this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, the similarities are remarkable and uh, that happens again and again uh, through these letters. And so we're going to go with John the disciple. And when John was called originally by Jesus, he was found mending his nets. John is a bit of a mender. Um, it, what comes through is his care for the churches. And so his two main purposes for writing seem to be, number one, damage control, and number two, to reassure this church that seems to be struggling through a church split. Just Let's have a, just a moment to look at those two things to help, help us understand what John is trying to deal with. Firstly, Damage control. There seems to be some travelling preachers in among the churches around Ephesus in modern day Turkey who John calls deceivers or antichrist. So he's, he's clearly not a big fan. And they're claiming to have received a direct download from God called special knowledge. And they've spread this rumour that the spiritual was much more important than the physical. So the body, the things you can taste and touch, the world wasn't important to them what matters is your spirit and what the spirit tells you and I think we can sort of relate to that we're living in a digital time rather than a physical reality so most of our interactions are digital there's very little physical and these teachers were in effect saying spiritual is the way to go the physical is old hat it's irrelevant it's unimportant but the problem with this teaching of spirit over body is that really it's saying you can do whatever you like with your body. God doesn't really care about it. In 1 John 1 verse 8, you can see that John's trying to sort of attack their claim to be without sin. And it would have been a very attractive teaching, um, but it was the equivalent of the spiritual Wild West because people could just do whatever. 
And it was also incredibly divisive as Christians were made to feel like they weren't spiritual enough because they emphasised the physical too much. And historians call that sort of whole teaching Gnosticism. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which means special knowledge. And they said that Jesus wasn't really God, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, but rather he was more like a ghost or a phantom. And there was an offshoot of Gnosticism called Docetism from the Greek word Dokian, which means to seem. So they're saying it only seemed that Jesus was human and that he pretended to eat and drink and walk. And so in summary, they sort of denied that Jesus was the Christ, that he didn't really die or rise again. And that teaching was just destroying the, the, the church community. So the purpose of this letter was to do some damage controls to protect the people. But secondly, he wanted to bring reassurance. And I'm not much of a walker, but apparently when you're sort of at the top of a mountain and the fog and the mist descends, one of the most comforting things to have with you is a map and a compass and you trust them to bring you down safely. And so in the fog of these different teachings and myths and confusion, John wants to bring reassurance. And we're going to find that his teaching circles around two main themes. One, he talks about God is light. So God is is pure and he's perfect and he's holy and your lives should be the same as that and also he talks about the fact that God is love that God cares for you he brings comfort he saves and delivers you and he wants his people to imitate his love and the teaching style in the letter is called amplification so instead of a linear argument that's very logical um, John just takes these two ideas and uses them again and again and interweaves them into different things that he's saying in order to build the volume. So damage control and reassurance, the two sort of themes that we're going to discover in this letter together. And so let's read these first four verses. Uh, you'll immediately notice the similarities between Genesis 1, John 1 and then 1 John 1. It's very deliberate and I want you to notice how he's focusing on Jesus in the flesh and my wife Pip is going to read these verses to us. Okay I know it's very dense and not easy to follow. So let's just read that first verse again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So what is he talking about? Well, John's talking about the word of life. You can see that at the end of the verse. Now we know that John calls Jesus Christ the word in his gospel because Jesus is the way God reveals and communicates himself to us he's the word so John's saying the word Jesus was around at the beginning so that means he's an eternal word he's sort of out of time that which was for the from the beginning and that word John says we've actually met him in the flesh we've seen him we've touched him he's not a phantom he's not a spirit but Jesus in the flesh is the one we proclaim and focus on and it's absolutely fascinating he's challenging these pesky Gnostics with a doctrine that we call the incarnation 
Literally, it means God clothes himself with flesh. Um, it's from the Spanish word carne, which means flesh or meat. And most of you might have eaten chili con carne. It's meat with chili. And so the incarnation is God and flesh together. And in the incarnation, the eternal son, Jesus, who has always possessed the divine nature, has not changed or set aside his deity, his godness, but instead he's added to himself a second nature, namely a human nature consisting of a human body and soul. Philippians 2 tells us this. And as a result, the individual Jesus is, is one person. He's the son who now subsists in two natures, which is fully God and fully man. And I know it's hard to wrap your head around it, but the son of God didn't have to pick between being God or being man, but he could be both at the same time. And so the incarnation is an act of addition, not of subtraction. So God becomes a baby. He was born to parents. He had uncles and aunts and cousins. He hungered. He thirsted. He he got tired. He fell asleep. He yawned. He had internal organs and hands and feet and hair. And the African theologian, theologian Augustine of Hippo brilliantly asserts man's maker was made man that he ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast that the bread might hunger the fountain thirst the light sleep the way be tired on its journey that truth might be accused of false witnesses the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded and that life might die. See, Jesus' humanity was essential for him to save our humanity. He, he simply couldn't be the head of a new humanity if he wasn't actually human. Jesus took on our flesh and our blood in order to heal it of its sin. He would have to take it through death into new life and bring it back to God. And by coming in a body, he gives hope and future to our bodies. To be the new Adam, he had to be fully like the old Adam, but without the sin. Michael Reeves writes, now here's the wonder of the incarnate son of man. The loving relationship the son has always enjoyed with the father he now brings to us. When he becomes a man, for the first time a human being enjoys the son's own fellowship with and standing before the father. In Jesus, for the first time, there's a human being living in perfect relationship with God, loving God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, loving his neighbour as himself. He is the first ever to keep and fulfil the law. And this is, this is what he brings to share with humanity, his own sonship his own relationship with life with his father. And what a life! Christians will use the negative chilly word to describe Jesus's life. It was sinless. And that tells us what he was not. He was not selfish or heartless or cruel or abusive or twisted or petty or proud. But what was he like? Well, Jesus was anything but boring and anemic. He was a man with towering charisma. 
running over with life. Health and healing, loaves and fishes all abounded in his presence. So compelling did people find him that crowds thronged around him, men and women, children, the sick, the mad, the rich, the poor. They found him so magnetic that they just wanted to touch his clothes. Kinder than summer, he befriended rejects and gave hope to the hopeless. The dirty, the despised, found they mattered to him. His closest friends found that as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was like being with the bridegroom at a wedding. He was a man who felt a world of pain, yet who abounded in joy. Generous and genial, firm and resolute. He was always surprising, loving but not soppy. His insight unsettled people and his kindness won them. Indeed, he was a man of extraordinary contrast. You simply couldn't make him up. You'd only make him one or the other. So he was red-blooded and human, but not rough. He was pure, but never dull. He was serious, but with some beams of wit. He was sharper than cut glass. He out-argued all comers, but never for the sake of the win. He knew no failings in himself yet was transparent and humble. He made the grandest claims for himself, yet without the whiff of pomposity. He ransacked the temple, spoke of hellfire, called Herod a fox. The Pharisees pimped up courses, and yet never do you doubt his love, his love for our lives. With a huge heart, he hated evil, and felt for the needy he loved God and loved people and you look at him and you have to say here is a man truly alive unwithered in any way far more vital and vigorous far more full and complete far more human than any other and this is why John calls Jesus the life this incredible life that God is inviting us into now and for eternity. 1 John 1 verse 2 says, the life, and what a life, the life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So why is this so important? Why does John start here? Why is he cramming truth like sardines into a can? Well, six things the incarnation teaches us. And we're just going to do this really quickly. Number one, Jesus understands what it means to be human. That's what the incarnation teaches us. As the incarnate son, he experiences the wonder and weakness of complete human life. He had to grow in wisdom and physical stature. He experienced tears and joy and suffered death and a glorious resurrection for his people's salvation. You know, God totally understands you. He understands your life right now because he's lived a life. He sympathises not from a distance. He's lived in your shoes. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not removed. He's not unfeeling. But right now he knows. So if you're struggling in lockdown, feeling isolated or alone or frustrated or a dozen different things during the day, he's been there. He knows what it is to feel let down or burdened or abandoned or confused. And listen, if you're uh, someone who's experienced a lifetime of racism and oppression and struggle, well, Jesus, a Middle Eastern man, a refugee himself, gets it. 
He knows that you're weary and angry and wounded and sinned against and tired. Jesus knows how we feel. He understands the human experience. Secondly, the incarnation tells us or shows us how humble yet glorious he is. It's so hard to do this justice, but let me just try and tell you a story from a church planter in the Middle East. They write this. When we first moved to the Middle East, we heard from our language helpers that on festival days, everyone dresses in their best clothes and goes to visit their relatives and neighbours to celebrate. So for our first Eid festival, we very carefully cleaned our apartment. We dressed up in our best clothes. We got some sweets and chocolates, which are traditional to hand out to visitors. And we waited in our house, but no one came to visit. We asked our language helpers what we'd done wrong and laughing, they explained, well, on festival days, the small visit the big and the big give out presents. So, for example, everyone in a family visits their eldest brother or their parents or their grandparents. And when they arrive, they would kiss the hand of the older person to show respect and honour. And the host would then make sure that their guests are well looked after. You know, they feed them, serve them, give them gifts such as good quality chocolate. Sounds like my kind of friends. And sometimes money and other presents. And being newly arrived foreigners who didn't speak the language and thus having no social standing or relatives, naturally no one came to visit us. We were considered small by the culture, so we are the ones who need to do the visiting. And they write this, reflecting on this, I was struck again by the awesomeness of the incarnation. Whilst in every other religion, especially those prevalent in the Middle East, humans, the small, try to visit God by their own strength through ritual or moral purity or good works. The Christian God knew that this was impossible for us due to the barrier and stench of our sin. As much as we try to dress up nicely, we cannot be clean enough to enter his house without polluting and disrespecting it. In the incarnation, God decided to play the role of both the small and the big. As we couldn't visit his house and probably wouldn't want to even if we could, he humbled himself totally to become small so that he could visit us in our squalid house. But also as the big, he played the role of the host and gave gifts dealing with our sins, sending the Holy Spirit, making us clean, which means that as believers, we are now appropriately dressed and thus free to enter his house without disrespecting it. The incarnation shows us how humble yet glorious he is. Thirdly, it confirms the goodness of physical existence. So flesh, skin, bodies, they matter. It's not just about our spirit. Jesus, the creator, he affirms it and redeems it. And it was vital for this fragile church to know that. That it's not just about their souls, but their lives, how they live them. Um, The way we act towards others is important to God. So let's not be so super spiritual that we forget that this world, that people's existence, poverty, injustice, the environment, they all matter to God. Fourthly, incarnation wins our salvation. Blood is sacrificed. Actual blood gets spilled at the cross. And it's God's blood. He takes the punishment we deserve, not theoretically, but physically. 
It was necessary because our sin separated us from God and we face judgment. Jesus comes as our perfect substitute, the man who was fully God yet fully man, who dies in our place so that we can know God. It is profound and magnificent truth. And fifthly, the incarnation gives the model for loving one another. And I'm going to finish with this. John says in verse three, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So he wants them to believe in Jesus. The incarnation. So that they can be in fellowship or community together and in fellowship with God. So I hope you see that this is about our belief in God, but it's also about our fellowship, our life together. The incarnation is our model for how not only God loves us, but how we love each other. And the early church was so marked by this. They so valued this principle that they wrote a song about it that they could sing regularly when they met together. And that song is recorded by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. And the words are V-shaped. There is a descent and then there's an ascent. It says this, therefore, if any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of uh, the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is the link between the way we treat each other and the incarnation. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. How should we love each other? In the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And so, listen, this is so relevant for right now. How do we find a way through in this heated time of racial injustice? Well, we do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility value others above ourselves, just like Jesus, who emptied himself, who made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant to the point of death in order for God to lift him up to the highest place. And so listen, for those in the majority who have power, we need to empty ourselves of that power and privilege again and again for the sake of the least, the lost and the last. We need to raise others up at cost to ourselves. We need to listen and learn and work for others in a cruciform way. That simply means the way of the cross, the way that Jesus shows us. Trusting the Lord to replenish what we relinquish 
and raise us up in due time. And the beautiful thing is we can do it because the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus is living inside us. So Mosaic Church, I want to call you to worship the incarnate son, the word of life. And through this incarnation, we obtain fellowship with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And that in turn provides the example of how we love one another. How do we do it? By laying our lives down, by emptying ourselves so that others are raised up. Amen.